0: Marvelites, you are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale, August 18th, 2021. We are celebrating What If Month still, and I'm Ryan Penagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yes, yes, yes. We have a great one today, Tucker. We're going to have a great conversation about some What If stuff. We've got some cool comics to talk about, some important launches and more, but uh, how you
1: doing? I'm doing good. I'm back after a whirlwind Tour of the East Coast, and now I'm back in sunny Southern California. How you doing? Good.
0: I we took a vacation, the first vacation I've had during this whole pandemic time. Where'd you go? It was uh, Bald Eagle State Park in Pennsylvania. That was great. It was uh, was really nice. And on the way home, we passed by two important New Jersey towns: Blairstown, New Jersey. Oh North yeah, town. And Buttsville, was it? But- I think it's Buttsville. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: Buttsville, New Jersey is where uh, Hot Dog Johnny's is. You, you know, see me wear my hot dog shirt. That's partially why I have that hot dog shirt. One, it's a local landmark. But two, because it's in B-U-T-T-Z-V-I-L-L-E, New Jersey, Buttsville, and it's just the best.
0: Well, we're gonna have to get some <laughs> hot dogs in Buttsville next time we we head that way. But uh, yes, let's get into the show on Marvel's Pulse. We tell you all about the new comics out this week. We have three picks of our favorite books, then we give out a bunch of great awards to the rest of the wonderful comics that are on sale, we tell you about what collections are on sale and what hits Marvel Unlimited this week, and then we dive into a reading club uh, where we dig into the Marvel Vault to talk about some great stuff. Who is our guest for reading club this week?
1: This week, we're talking to senior editor Will Moss, one of the best, most talented folks around. He's edited some of the best runs ever on Thor, some of the best runs ever on Black Panther, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and so, so, so much more. Immortal Hulk. Immortal Hulk. And we're talking to Will about What If, of course, and we're covering with him What If numbers 7 and 10 from the original series. And then from the 1989 series, we're covering issue number 60, as well as a unique new take on this, which is sort of the modern, interesting, like limited series version of the what if verse of the what if question. And we're talking to Will as well about Spider's Shadow, which is really, really exciting. The Chip Zdarsky series, of course, so much good stuff. Really, really uh, looking forward to talking to Will about these things, not just because Will is an expert on these matters, but because Will is a big fan himself. It's going to be great.
0: Yeah, we love Will. Uh, We're glad to have him on the show, talk a little bit of what if. But before we get there, we got to dive into our picks of the week. First up is Kang the Conqueror, number one. Hell yeah. Look, I love Kang. I've loved Kang from a long time. His look? perfection. The big flowy blouse, the thigh-high boots, the purple, the blue, the green. It is tremendous. And he's a time traveler. This is a book that is saying, here's who Kang is. Here's all the different versions of him. Here's a bit of an origin and and sort of trying to tie things together because he's mostly been an antagonist and a villain and a side character in many books. Hasn't often gotten the spotlight. So this is written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly with art by Carlos Magno. Colors by Espen grutin and V.C. Joe Caramagna doing the letters. I was so excited to see Carlos do this book. He is so, so detailed. This is Jam-packed with little, little tiny touches throughout each. We open this book with a young Nathaniel Richards. Nathaniel Richards, remember the name, Richards, is or will be Kang the Conqueror. And um we we open on him in the you know 31st century as a young man, bored out of his mind, because he has everything, he can have everything, world is just too peaceful. He's got the itch that itch to to be something more, to do something more. And so he goes on his his cool little hover bike and he he finds himself in the ruins of Dr. Doom's library and sort of excavating something really special. And from there, the adventure really unfolds. He uh, comes face to face with a Doombot. He comes face to face with himself, a version of Kang come from the future to say like, hey boy, You got to get your stuff together. He brings them all the way to 65 million BCE to dinosaur times. Gives them one year before the asteroid that will snuff out all life for quite a while crashes down and then says, you basically have one year to learn to live, to, to be something special, something more. And we're also going to go on adventures and see what makes Kang Kang. So... It's wonderful. This is the first work I've read, I believe, from the writers uh, as well, Jackson and Colin. It's big. It's got a lot of ground to cover in a number of ways, big expectations, and I think they crushed it. I think they they really did some some excellent stuff here. So I'm crazy excited to see more of this. Uh, Also, shout out to all the various covers here, the variant covers, the main covers by Mike Del Mundo, who is a friggin just genius. But there's tons of covers by our Stormbreakers and many more. So get your hands on some Kang.
1: Yes. Agreed. Very much agreed. Now we're jumping over to my pick this week, which is Marauders number 23. It's written by Jerry Duggan with art by Ivan Fiorelli, colors by Rain Burrito, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. In that name Ivan Fiorelli is why this book is my pick this week. I love the energy, the tone, the spirit that he brings to this book. It totally transforms the story. It totally brings it into something that feels really fresh and really youthful. And that's not something I really expected out of this series. When I think of Jerry Duggan, I think of a little bit more mature side of storytelling. This is still the Marauders we know and love, but just to see it paired with this art is so exciting. It's so fresh and new and really, really distinct. What goes on in the story um, is equally exciting. Now, especially if you're a Banshee fan, there is a great Banshee fight scene in here that I really love. And on top of that, we get plenty of Heather Tucker, a.k.a. Tempo in here, which is very exciting the opening quote that so many of these X-Men books kick off with is in this issue of Um, from Cyclops about tempo. And it's really, really fun. It's, It's really cool. And it's so cool to see that character having a bigger and bigger influence on a story like this. And that takes us into sort of what I think of as like kind of chapter three of this issue, which is sort of surrounding the Stepford Cuckoos. And to see Jerry having fun with those characters, to see Jerry placing those characters in a very unique and specific and delicate place in this story is exciting. It's really, really fun. It's just one of those things that just feels like this entire series right now is on a knife edge. It could go well. It could go poorly for these characters. Who's to say? Only one way to find out is to keep reading. But I also want to give a quick shout out to Russell Dodderman and Matt Wilson because they have another smashing, incredible, beautiful cover on this issue of Marauders that I really love. And I will say, as someone who was editing Marvel.com during the X-Men vote, there wasn't as much tempo art as I hoped. There's not a – there haven't been that many stories focused on on Heather Tucker. So to see that cover, to see this entire issue jumping in there, it just makes me happy and it makes me excited for the future of that character.
0: Yeah. Let's move into our third pick of the week. And it is X-Men, The Trial of Magneto, number one, written by Leah Williams, with art by Lucas Wernick, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. We love, love Leah on the show. Her writing is incredible. Her X-Factor was just an incredible book. Um, very excited to see Lucas here. I was looking at, at a database. I think Lucas has penciled less than 10 issues for us. That's point, crazy. Right? Right. But he's getting the spotlight here. Well-deserved in terms of, like, showing he's got the goods. I will say this can be a tough book. This book may have some difficult things to read and see. This is The Trial of Magneto because during the events of the Hellfire Gala, Scarlet Witch was murdered. And this book is kind of about figuring out who murdered the Scarlet Witch and why. And a lot of signs point to Magneto. We'll see what it all shakes out to. But there's emotion in it. There's scientific findings going on behind it. We get to have Leah really like show off the X-Factor squad, the investigative team. They put their talents to the forefront here, and we get to utilize that to see and do the investigation into the murder of Scarlet Witch. And it's unflinching. Without being gratuitous and overly horrific, just reading what the characters are describing is upsetting. As the investigation goes on, like I said, it really, a lot of signs point to Magneto. So you get a friggin' great Magneto versus his fellow mutants throwdown, which is not something we've really gotten to see during this Krakoan era uh, and getting to see members of X-Factor and the X-Men and X-Force stand together to go up against Magneto, whom they all think has killed someone they know, it is wild. And then you, you get these big high of this battle and then emotionally devastating moments, whether it's with Quicksilver or with Speed. I don't want to spoil anything more, but the last couple of pages, I was like, wait, I'm excited because I don't know fully where it's going. I know some of the ending, but I don't know all of it. So I'm excited to see where it goes. And I was caught off guard by a, a couple of the beats in here. And so I'm excited for everybody to read this.
1: Yeah. That's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're diving into... All the excellent Marvel comics that are headed your way this week. And this week, to all of those Marvelous Marvel mags, we will be awarding the Buttsville Prize for Excellence in Comic Booking. And the first one goes out to Star. I'll say what that means in a second, but you might already know if you've been looking ahead in Black Cat. This is issue number nine, and it stars Ripley Ryan, a.k.a. Star, every single time Star shows up in a book, I get so, so excited. One, we get to see that costume. Two, every single time it feels like we're continuing to witness the building up of like a new major player in the Marvel Universe. This issue, we see Star thoroughly embedded in the Infinity Score story arc, which is what we're in the middle of here with Black Cat. This is part two of that. How that happens, what happens is really interesting. I love it. This is sort of an issue of Black Cat that's totally told from the perspective of characters other than Felicia Hardy, who then encounter the Black Cat, and we're taken off guard the same way they are. I think it's something that captures the spirit and energy and the pressure but also the excitement of what's going on in terms of the Infinity Stones and all of that. So kudos to Jed McKay and CF Via, uh for bringing in another great issue of Black Cat.
0: Yeah. All right, we've got Gamma Flight number three out this week. And my Buttsville Prize for Excellence in Comic Books Award goes to the narration here. It is by... One of our faves, Eugene Judd, a.k.a. Puck. He's one of the coolest characters, got some wild history. And they even talk about it in this issue. There's a character here who's just sort of getting into the super business of it all. And Puck is like, I think I know where we are. It's not hell. I've been to hell. And the character's like, wait, you've been to hell? He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. For Puck, it's just, you know, another day, another dollar. He's doing what he's doing. The series is great. We're, we're getting to see this team, this Gamma Flight squad, come together to help this new character deal with things. And especially the last few beats of this issue really hit home and discussion of family and, and who family is, not necessarily from blood, but tying all that all the different aspects of family together. I love that.
1: Next up. We have Guardians of the Galaxy number 17, and we are in the midst of the last Annihilation. This is a big story that's going down in these pages, and I love it so much. I'm going to jump back, though, a few years and give sort of by proxy of this issue of Guardians of the Galaxy my Buttsville prize for excellence in comic books to infamous Iron Man. And that is because what's happening in Guardians of the Galaxy, what's been happening in the Guardians of the Galaxy, and as this story evolves, Doctor Doom has become heavily involved in this story. When I think of a Doctor Doom story that places that character in a place where he can truly be a superhero, he can truly be a supervillain, I think back to Infamous Iron Man, which is an entire series that was sort of based on that premise. And so when we get to taste of that again, I just get so excited. But now, particularly in this issue, the focus starts to pull in like a tractor beam on old Vicky uh, and the decisions he makes and how that impacts everyone around him. I love it so much. It's just so, so exciting and fun for me, and I love it.
0: Hell Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about Iron Man number 11, which does one of the things that I love. It takes a kind of like jokey villain and gives them gravitas and gives them an interesting story and makes them a threat and makes them sort of relatable and believable in a lot of ways. And I'm going to give my Buttsville Prize for Excellence in Comic Book Storytelling Award to uh, two tall boys, one of them being Stiltman in here and the other character is a tall abstract of the Marvel universe. Uh, I won't spoil which abstract it is, but I love the cosmic abstracts. I love that part of the, uh, the Marvel universe coming to bear in this story that shows up and sort of throws things on its ear in a really cool way.
1: Next up, we have Miles Morales' Spider-Man Annual Number one, this is another one of the Infinite Destinies stories. We kick things off in this issue, of course, alongside Saladin Ahmed, who tells a Miles story that I just think is Saladin having so much fun. It's just the most sort of how do we throw Miles into a story that he does not expect, and how do we have fun while we're doing it? And not only is it that, but of course it's like so perfectly paced and wonderful in terms of how the story unfolds, how it speeds up, how it slows down, the emotional moments. It's so, so great. Not only do we have that in this issue, we also have Infinite Fury Part Seven, which is the Nighthawk story ongoing that we have from Jed McKay and Juan Ferreira. Another awesome entry into there. I spoke briefly before about Ripley Ryan, AKA Star, and we get more star action in here. What is going on? Oh my God but uh, more great stuff on that front as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, we have issue four of the Marvels out this week. This cool title that has the possibility for any character anywhere anywhere Anytime, time, all coming together to tell this big interweaving story. In this issue, we've got Arrow, Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, Black Cat, Storm, and one of the a, a number of characters who've shown up mainly in this book, including Kevin Schumer. I'm going to give my Buttsville Prize to Excellence in Comic Book Storytelling award to the big giant monsters that show up here that sort of pull in a whole bunch of characters and just the weird stuff that happens with the monsters. I dig on that a lot.
1: Oh, yeah. And continuing in that similar uh, cryptic, strange vein, we have Moon Knight number two. And holy cow, Alessandro Cappuccio freaks it. Oh, my God. There's a double page spread in here that is my favorite of the week. It is genuinely breathtaking and beautiful. But my Buttsville Prize for Excellence in Comic Booking goes out to, I think, just Moon Knight in general. And here's why. That's a character that all artists love. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. But I just really feel like the artists that we've seen do Moon Knight stories or talk about Moon Knight online or do whatever it might be when it comes to Mark Spector, when it comes to this character, when it comes to that silhouette against the night sky, you can tell it brings out the best in so many different people. And as evidenced by that double page and by as evidenced by both issues of this series so far, that is definitely true.
0: Yeah. All right, let's move to a little Spider-Man action with Sinister War number three. Things go from bad to worse for poor old Spider-Man here as more villains enter the fray. I'm just going to give my uh, Buttsville prize for excellence in comic booking to all the friggin' villains in this book. There are at least 25 bad guys just going after Spider-Man in this book, and it is it is dangerous.
1: Next up, we have what was almost my pick this week, which Mm -hmm. is Spider Woman, number 14, and good God, another incredible issue that we have here. It truly is comic book magic in here between the story that we get, the drama that we have, but then also Perry Perez's art, which as we've spoken about one billion times, it feels like, is so beautiful. But in this issue in particular, my Buttsville prize for true excellence goes to Perry because There are some moments of genuine chaos in here that he makes read beautifully. The way your eye goes across the page, the way your eye flows between the panels is so organic. And it's really not anything you would recognize is happening in front of you until you read the whole issue. Then you stop and you flick back through and you go, how did they make that so organic and flow so beautifully? Because there is crazy stuff going on in here. Talk about excellence. That is the name of this series.
0: All right, let's get a little Star Wars with it. With Star Wars number sixteen, we are still into the War of the Bounty Hunters. Uh, We got two of them this week. This is a tie into it, and over in classic Star Wars here, we got Leia, Chewie, Lando up against Boba Fett. Boba Fett. Boba Boba Fett. Fett. (laughs) Oh, still my favorite thing. On top of that, you got uh, Vader's involved, Jabba the Hutt's involved. We're trying to figure out what the hell's going on with Luke. Chakara is a big staging ground for things. So don't miss out on this one.
1: Oh, yeah. And now we're jumping over to Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters number three in this main series. And look, in this issue, you have Jabba, you have Boba Fett, you have Darth Vader, and they all have their crosshairs on Solo. Uh, We are at the midway point now in terms of the main series, and it's a turning point, as you might expect, in terms of the broader story. It's just so exciting. It's brought to you by a collection of excellent, excellent masters in terms of Star Wars storytelling. Big love and big shout out to all of them. And my Buttsville Prize for Excellence in Comic Booking, though, it kind of could always go to Steve McNiven. Um, I feel like we've been seeing Steve on covers more and more over the past six months or so. I hope that continues because what a feast for the eyes Steve always brings.
0: All right, we're gonna head on over to the world of Warhammer Forty Thousand with Sisters of Battle. Number one, it's the next installment of our Warhammer Forty K series of books. Uh, this one, shout out to friend of the show Thorn Grunbeck, who, uh who is writing this one. And look, we'll be honest, Tucker and I, we don't know diddly squat about Warhammer stuff. This is new territory for us, but. Shout out to Thorn for building on this world, bringing us in, getting us close to these, uh, these characters and just murdering them mercilessly, <laughs> just viciously. There's brutality on pretty much every page. Also, my uh, Buttsville Prize for Excellence in Comic Booking just goes to the sheer brutality that I mentioned. It's, it's unrelenting. So uh, hold on to your hats.
1: Uh, And now hurry up and bamf on over with me in way of X to issue number five, the conclusion of this story. And what a beautiful series this has been. When you look at this story as a whole – and you look where we started with these big philosophical questions, with the challenge that was presented to Kurt Wagner when it comes to life and death on Krakoa, the new era of the X-Men, all of those things, how that comports with his own understanding of things uh, is such a fascinating question, and it's certainly deserving of this limited series and a great limited series it has been. So my Buttsville prize goes to Cy Spurrier because I think he's just so incredible at Presenting a bigger story with bigger themes and bigger action through character in the most precise, subtle, character-driven way. When we see Kurt Wagner here doing some really interesting, strange stuff and placed in a position where he's forced to do some really unexpected things. I I really, really love where we ended up with this series. And I got to say, it's a place that I never, ever, ever would have guessed.
0: All right, let's wrap up our new books this week with X-Corp number four. I think this is my favorite issue of the series so far. It shows the stakes of what is going on for this fledgling part of the Krakoan era, this company. This is the business end, but it's full of action and intrigue and espionage and and bickering and mutant stuff and human-mutant relations and all kinds of things. I think I want to give my Buttsville Prize for Excellence in comic booking for this one to two characters, Mastermind... And Celine. I'm a huge Celine fan. I think she's an incredible, she's often been a villain, but great antagonist. And in here, just like really cool part of this squad. And Mastermind is a dirtbag and he's manipulative because that's kind of his power. But yeah, I'm digging this issue a bunch.
1: Absolutely. And that wraps it up for all the fresh floppies headed your way this week. Now we look over to the collections sections which includes Marauders by Jerry Duggan, Volume 3. And if that ain't enough for you, you got Volume 3 of Reign of X at large. In addition to that, we also have a collection of Marvel's Voices Legacy, which is so, so great and so exciting. So much cool stuff over in collections.
0: Yeah. On Marvel Unlimited, a ton of great stuff. So the first issue of X-Corp, so you can dive into that there. Uh, You've got issue 12 of Spider-Woman, one of our absolute favorite books. Issue 9 of X-Factor, you got more Heroes Reborn. And importantly for our conversation this week, you have issue number two of Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow. And why is that interesting, Tucker? Well,
1: it is because we're talking about Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow with Marvel Comics senior editor, Will Moss. That, of course, is part of our broader What If Month where we're diving into what if stories of the past and of the present when it comes to Spider Shadow. So in this chat, we're covering that as well as what if number seven and number 10 from the 77 series and from the 89 series, issue number 60. So let's go talk about all that great stuff with Will Moss right now.
0: Tucker, put on your big boy pants because we have a legitimate Marvel's pullist all-star with us on this episode. It is Mr. Wilson Moss. Will Moss, hi. How are you?
1: Good, good. Uh, Will, we're here to talk about What If. This is What If Month. We're going to talk about Spider Shadow as well as a few issues of What If, classic What If. I'm just curious, in general, when you hear that title... What comes to mind? Is there a specific issue? Is there a specific comic shop you grew up going to and, and, and checking them out? Um, what comes to mind when we say what if?
2: Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, what if was just like when I learned about it, it was just so enticing. Because like, that's a half of the conversations you have as a comic fan. Or Like, what if this had happened instead? And then you find out that like Marvel's actually publishing a series of comics that kind of explore those questions. Like, it's super enticing. So that, that, was, that was something I remember when I learned about the line, just in like, oh, man, I want to find as many as I can. And then diving back into it, finding like that it had been going on for a couple of decades by the time I started reading it, and there's a lot to explore.
0: Yeah, a lot to explore, a lot to love, a lot to get freaked out by. It's you know a lot of disaster and heartbreak and interesting twists and turns. Uh, we have a bunch of great reading club suggestions that we're going to go through that you you chose for us, but. On top of that, can you give some of the, the bona fides of what you've been working on at Marvel over the last, God, how
2: long have you been at Marvel now? It's got to be 10 uh, years, right? Not quite. I think it's like seven or eight. I think it's coming up on eight. Yeah, I've, I've uh, like, I work in the, the hero's office. So, like, I work on books like four. Uh, I've been working on that through Jason Aaron's run and now Donnie Cates' run uh, with Nick Klein and um, Black Panther. Uh, started with that one with uh, Tana Hansen Coates and Brian Stelfries. Squirrel Girl is no longer being published, but it's always going to be my favorite book I've ever worked on. So that, that's another one that I liked a lot. And Hulk. I'm working on Hulk. Been working on that since Immortal Hulk launched. And then we're starting the new book with Johnny uh, Cates again and Ryan Outley, which is going to blow people's minds.
0: So yeah. Uh, you have done some work on what-if stuff. Tell us a little bit about the the current state of what-if what books we're publishing.
2: Sure. We've just recently kind of started a new approach to it where with this mini-series that's just concluded, Spider-Man, Spider Shadow, uh, where it's kind of like instead of an ongoing what if series where there's number one, two, three, four, five, and they all tackle a different question. Uh, we're doing like mini-series that tackle one concept. So this first one was basically you know, like what if Peter had kept the symbiote? What if Spider-Man had become Venom? So we want these stories to be something that can Anybody can pick up and people can pick up for a while, like with, with room for creators to kind of really get into it. The Spider Shadow is the first one. And we've got a couple more in the pipeline that we haven't announced yet, but we're gonna cover all the different parts of the Marvel universe and with a, a bunch of really exciting creators. It's a cool chance for these people to come in and really kind of cut loose and tell stories in a different way, while in in some cases, really embracing their kind of like inner fanboys.
1: I'm looking at Spider-Man, Spider-Shadow, and for for listeners, that's issue number one. And I think two now are available on Marvel Unlimited. But I'm looking at the credits page here, and I love the nod to classic what-ifs in the summary, because we have basically the story of of Secret Wars, how the symbiote, you know, the black costume ended up with Spidey, back to Earth, and then to Eddie Brock. And then it concludes with one sentence, but what if Spider-Man had kept the suit? And then the famous ellipsis... And question mark. On the most basic level, I'm sort of fascinated by summaries like that in whether it's in a series like this where you're kicking things off or, you know, trying to summarize where we've been, you know, 46 issues into Immortal Hulk or whatever it is. How do those come together? Do you write those? Does Kat write those for something like this? Or like, how do those come about? Who's responsible for that? Is that a conversation that you'll have with Chip? Does Chip put it together? And then like, what are the kind of tenets of what you try and cover with something like that?
2: To kind of go backwards there. Like, I think the recaps, they just need to tell you the bare minimum of what you need to know. I I I think sometimes I'm guilty of having overstuffed recaps because people can read a comic and and pick up a lot on their own. Right. I mean, so I, I don't think you ever need to get too thorough. So that's any, any good recap I think is basically just the bare essence of what you need to know. And so like a lot of times, like Kat Gagoru, what's the assistant editor on this project, and she's terrific. I work with her on a lot of my other projects. She'll write a recap first and send it to me, and I'll pick a pass at it, kind of strip it down or whatever, just to try to find the, the purest way to sum up the story. In this specific case of Spider Shadow, yeah, we did I did talk with Chip a little bit about what kind of approach he might want to see there, just because the story set in the past and it picks up on a lot of things from that Spider-Man run, like, like subplots and things like that. So I did talk to them a little bit about how much we wanted to get into all that. And we both agreed that it's better off keeping it simple. And if people want to dig more, then they can see that, oh, this matches up with some of the stuff that was going on then.
0: Let's fully uh, give the creative team, which is Chip Zdarsky, writer, art by Pascal Ferry, just amazing colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And of course, got to give love to our pal Phil Noto on the covers. Great covers do so much for an already great book. Feels the best. Was Phil tough to like, cause he gets really busy with a lot of projects. Was it tough to sell him on, Hey, we're going to do a, what if I need you to, to do some horror covers?
2: No, I mean, Phil, uh, I've, I've known Phil for a long time and I don't know if it's because I've got kind of a good relationship with him or he's just always, because this guy produces a ton of work. He's pretty much always game whenever I hit him up or something. And so this was no exception. I just pitched it to him and he was all in. And yeah, just to circle back to the creative team, like there's something that we're kind of summarizing this new what-if approach, uh, should have brought up there is the fact that like Chip wrote this first story, but also like Chip kind of like spearheaded this whole kind of direction. He pitched doing like a return to what if like this, where it's multi-issue stories that are kind of have their own titles. And then you know, he's a designer and artist. He's a renaissance man. He he's the guy who came up with the what if logo for this, and he um had a lot of impact on like the look of that recap like chip's fingers are are all over not just the spider shadow story but also like the template for where we're going to be going with these water stories
1: yeah, that's fascinating. That's something that I've talked about on the show a bunch as well is Chip's clear attention to detail with these things and how much he cares about these things. And you mentioned him working on the What If logo, which appears in the top corner of the covers and is so good. That kind of thing is just so cool to me. I, I love that attention to detail. Do you know how much of an influence Chip's work on Spider-Man Life Story was on this kind of project? Because they, they kind of came back to back.
2: Yeah, sure. No, no, definitely. Life Story was big for Marvel just in the sense that it showed that our readership now has an appetite for stories like that. Yeah, like, I I don't think we'd be doing this if if not for Life Stories. You know, like, people just want a good story regardless of where it's set. So that that definitely helped with this. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's, like, an important sticking point in my head. It's like, it should always rely on the body of work. You know, you look at a, a story like, I hate using The Dark Knight Returns, but, like, that's not an in quote unquote in continuity story, but it's a good friggin' comic. Like you just got to embrace it. You got to enjoy it. And, you know, we've had a a million stories that sort of fit those molds. So I'm really glad that we're able to bring these to people. It's important for me because I think you lose out on potential emotional beats and story beats and just you get creative juices flowing. I, I imagine the stories like these will really captivate and start, younger readers or or newer readers thinking about the possibilities that the Marvel Universe, the Marvel multiverse holds based on stuff like this.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um on the first issue of Spider-Man Spider Shadow, it says part one of four. But um look, I know we're a publishing company and we've published <laughs> point one issues and point like AU issues. And so math has never been Marvel's strong <laughs> point, myself included. Yep. But the series runs five issues. What's going on there? Yeah, that was uh it was planned as four issues, outlined
2: as four issues, and as Chip was writing it, he emailed me and said, Hey, I've got more story here than I've got space for. I can do it, I can close it uh, in this one issue. But if there's any way we could get an extra issue, that would really be great. That's not something we can always do, but in this case, you know, we got approval for it and the main hurdle of the clear was making sure that uh Pascal and Matt, artists and colorists would have time for it. And they did. So once they did, everybody was on board with having to be five. So yeah. It started out as four, but then grew to five.
1: Uh, that's great for readers. It's great for us because we loved it. Um you know I'm I'm curious in general, the way this book looks, it just was striking. It it felt like a, a super modern approach to what a comic looks like, how a panel layout Appears across the page because it didn't, it, I don't know, it just didn't feel classic comic books in a lot of ways, which I really enjoyed. And you know, it just felt like a, an interesting, unique choice. And I think there is, I would say, in a bunch of books that you edit, I see a bunch of creative teams doing things like that. And I want to touch on that in a second. But I was curious if Pasquale had that sort of idea. If there was a spirit behind the choice, if there was like a, an intentional choice to say, you know what, this is a modern what if story, we're going to give it a very modern look, despite the fact that we're sort of playing with this 1980s like origin, we're telling this story in 2021. So we want it to look a particular way.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was definitely uh, uh, right out the gate.
1: Uh, understanding across the board creative team was that we didn't want this to be. We weren't trying to
2: make a story that you could fit into a collection of those original stories. So like, yeah, that was part of it. We also, you know, talked with Pasquale kind of the same approach that we hit Phil with about the covers. Like we wanted Pasquale to feel like that he could kind of put his own style onto this. So a lot of the visual approach that you're looking at here is pure Pasquale. I mean, that, that guy is, is a genius. Like he's just got a very cool, distinct style and a smart eye for ways to tell story that I, I think he just applied
1: in full force here. Mm -hmm. It feels less like a series and a little bit more almost like an imprint, a broader style that you're looking to bring to this series and then the series that, like you said, are, are to follow. I'm curious if that's an intentional thing, if that's something where you're looking to carve out a very distinct visual and tonal corner of like Marvel publishing and, 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 current series, or if that's just like an innate sort of natural creative choice that you find attractive.
2: Yeah. I think it's an opportunity here to have a space where it can be about creators really cutting loose. It kind of needs to be like, if, if we're going to be doing these kind of stories that are set outside the normal continuity that are dealing with times past or whatever, like it, it, for readers too it needs to be something i think that really stands out so you need readers to feel like they can invest in this deeply like and and really have fun and, and approach things differently like because then that comes out hopefully ideally that comes out in the story itself which will hook readers like it's not really an imprint but it is similar in the sense that it's more about letting creators kind of show off and like, have, have it be something that's less of an assignment and more of something that it's like personal, a, a passion project for them. Right, right, right.
0: With, with that in mind, do you, like, as this was announced or even as the first issue is rolling out, do you get emails from creators being like, yo, uh, I got this idea. Let me shoot my shot.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's led to a couple of things that are in the works already.
1: Let's jump over to some classic what if stuff and talk about all that to recap for listeners. We're going to talk a little bit about from 1977, the original what if series issues number seven and 10, and then from 80, to the 89 series talking about issue number 60. Will, what made you want to pick these three issues starting off with what if someone else besides Spider-Man had been bitten by the radioactive spider?
2: it just feels to me like that's a really classic example of what if like, and I think that one's fun because it also just the way that it goes through three different characters, it gives you like more bang for your buck. Like it plays with kind of the structure of of what you'd expect from a comic. And I think it's also just, it's a really fun story. Some of the best what if stories are like surprises, but then they feel like, Oh yeah, that makes sense that it would turn out like that. Um, You know, like there's flash pretty Good, decent Spider-Man, but then um, failing because ultimately he didn't have like Peter's, you know, ingenuity. Like you can see that. Like it, it kind of makes sense that the brash guy like that would have the parts where he goes and hits a bank robber down pat. But then uh, when it comes to kind of the glue or the specifics of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man, he'd fall a little short.
0: Uh, in the Flash sequence, there's a, a sequence where he accidentally kills the Crusher Hogan character because he doesn't like pull his strength back and. It's not funny, but it's like the page goes. He's like, oh, God, what did I do? What did I do? And then the cops come and he pushes them out of the way. And then he just jumps out the window. And it's just it's like a pure Simpsons gag right there. And I freaking I loved it so much. <laughs> I feel so bad about what I did. Oh, wait, do you want me to accept responsibility for it? No. You gotta go. <laughs> or like, have you ever seen Japanese Spider-Man? There's a, a great moment from the Japanese Spider-Man show where he just jumps out a window and and people have used that as a great like reaction gif. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, but I, I'm re-flipping through it. I was like, I remembered that spot.
1: Yeah. Uh, I love this issue in particular because it shines a spotlight on one of my favorite characters, That's old John Jameson. Yeah. I absolutely love John Jameson, if only because I think John Jameson is one of the coolest names for somebody around. And I just – yeah, I I love that one in particular. And there's this great marriage happening throughout this whole issue between like the classic – Style art, which I just think is done so wonderfully by Rick Hoberg. Uh, let me let me give the the credits here. It's written by Don Glatt, with art by Rick Hoberg, inks by Sam Granger, colors by George Russo, and letters by Rick Parker. The art is so wonderfully classic, Spidey. It's so. Ditko and great. And then marrying that with like the John Jameson version of the Spidey suit or the Spider Girl suit, like these wacky out there.
2: Which is pretty terrible.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that helmet
2: is... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I in the Spider Girl suit, but yes, also uh, John Jameson's helmet is yeah. also... Yeah, both for terrible. different reasons. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson, I mean, it's a lot of great J. Jonah Jameson stuff in this issue. I like that moment where he says, that suit looks great. Because I designed it. Like, that that's that's a great, <laughs> little, true J. Jonah Jameson right there.
0: Yeah, this one is, is terrific. And what's fun is also, like, modern readers who maybe have read Spider-Verse or Spider-Geddon can, like, go back and, and see how these have even influenced those stories. Because you see characters from this, from, um, there was another Spider, the one with Aunt May when she becomes Spider-Man, um, that issue. Where, like, they've shown up in those stories, and it's great. You, like, that's the Marvel multiverse. You can pull from all these things, and there's a lot of possibility. You know, one of the other things that we've talked about, and I, I, maybe in some of the content that's on Marvel.com that Tucker and the team are working on, is just there are certain what if stories that eventually, in some way, shape, or form, came true in the 616 canon. And so we'll jump to one of your other choices, which is what if number 10 from the first volume? What if Jane Foster had found the hammer of Thor? Obviously, not the same as the story that Jason Aaron and, and Russell and and you guys were telling. But um, did any of you go back to this as the idea for for Jane was sort of coming together?
2: Yeah, I mean that, that that's for sure why I picked this one is just because like I I have such a strong feelings about the Jane story that we did on Thor that Jason and, and Russell uh, and all the rest guys did on Thor. Like, I like Jane as Thor a lot. When this we started doing that story, I can't speak for for Jason. Like once we started working on the story, then I immediately went back and read this. Um, and it's fun to see just how great of a character Jane is in this too. Like she fights all the bad guys for by Loki tries to hypnotize her and take the hammer from her, which Thor fell for and gave him the hammer. But Jane doesn't. Jane's like, wait, no, but she takes off. Like it's cool to see Jane being as awesome as she was in the main run when she was Thor and uh, Valkyrie now. So there's a lot of, like, connections here that, that just make this kind of a fun thing to revisit and we have that story where Janet's Thor actually happened.
0: This Thor story is wild, too. It's fun. It, there's a lot of cool stuff. She calls herself Thordis. But by the end, like, two pages. Yeah, the end is where it just, like, right. Drives off like, a <laughs> I'm like, oh. the end's like three pages. Like, they beat the Mangog. They, they deal with Loki. She's friggin' great. And then Odin's like, okay, you had your turn here, uh, Don Blake, here. Here's the hammer. You were supposed to have this. And he's like, whoa. And then like, Jane <laughs> turns from Thordis back to Jane. And they're like, my own nurse was Thordis? Whoa. Uh, which is, is is wild. But then Odin's like, uh, you're still cool, though, Jane. How about you be a goddess? And then she's like, oh, what am I going to do? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, how about you be a goddess? With me, and he's like all <laughs> sultry and like loving up on her, and then like they just go off, and she becomes the new queen. Yeah,
2: <laughs> falls in love with Odin. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's wild. They have the yeah. same
2: problem, I guess, of the writing the stories as, as like you kind know, of we did. Like after we knew Jane's time as Thor would have to come to an end, it's like, well, we all love Jane. What do we do with her now? It's just you know, back to being normal Jane Foster. Uh, so we came up with the idea of having her become the new Valkyrie, and they decided, well, let's. Marry her off with Odin.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Before we get into um, the next issue, I wanted to point out over on Twitter, Dano underscore cosmic at Dano underscore cosmic tweeted to me something I had missed when I was going through my rereads of a letter in issue number two of What If from Mark Grunewald. Of all people, he wrote in to the comic because he was one of the, as we've heard from a bunch of folks uh, that we've talked to, Peter B. Gillis and Ralph Macchio, how Ralph was one of the like the troop of folks who would constantly write in to Marvel Comics. Mark writes a letter saying that he he had heard about the series and he's excited and he just throws a bunch of ideas at Marvel. And like, it's great because it's like, what if Rick Jones, not Bruce Banner, had become the Hulk, which becomes a what if story later? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably during Mark's run as editor. What if Bucky wasn't killed and Cap hadn't been frozen? What if Spider-Man had stopped the thief who killed Uncle Ben? What if Sue Storm had married Namor instead of Reed? What if Dr. Doom had never had the accident that unglued his sanity? What if Cap was, were frozen until 1976 or later? So it's obviously, he was like, well, I've got these ideas. When he becomes editor, he's just like, all right, yeah. we're doing these. <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic.
2: I'm, I'm a little jealous, though, like, as a, an editor now of the what if, projects like back then there was so much open territory now it's honestly a little tough to come up like well, what what if oh no that has been done before it's challenging to find fresh ground to do this so uh,
1: while we're touching on something like the jane issue i'm curious will with you personally and your work as an editor because of that huge diversity of the type of books that you've worked on i have always sort of wondered if Like you personally, as a creative person and as an influence on these books – Are you inspired by things other than comics? Do you watch things? Do you listen to? Do you read other media? Do you take in other things? Do you find yourself consciously inspired by certain things or influenced by certain things? Do you even have time to do that?
2: I mean, yeah. Honestly, like I uh, got kids now, and so there's not really a lot of time for (laughs) for much. Like, like sure. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm always just trying to look at different forms of. Uh, media for for inspiration and for fresh ideas or for different voices. I like a variety of, of, of storytelling, a variety of genres, but it's not so much that I seek out to tell stories in different genres as it is kind of a lot of the times luck of the draw um, or a lot of the times um, the approach that the creators that I go to want to tell. With all the books that I work on, I, I try to Well, there are two ways about it. Either there'll be some creators that I want to work with and then you try to find the right project for them or if you have a project already, find the right creators for it. So I'll work with a lot of different creators. I don't necessarily have just like a stable people that I always go to because as much as I like working with a lot of people I work with, I kind of let what I think would be best for the best version of the story dictate who
1: that is. Right. I hasten to add one thing as we talk about all these books that you've edited. I have talked about being a fan of yours. I'm also a Huge fan of fellow editor Sarah Brunstad, who has worked with you on many of these series, who is just another freak talent editor who's so, so good at her job. And uh, yeah, I had to mention Sarah while we're talking about all these things. Absolutely. Sarah's like phenomenal. Sarah's like, she's got, I don't know, she's just a natural. She's good at
2: all aspects of the job stories, she's good at art, she's good at coming up with ideas, she's good at advocating for issues she believes in. Like, Sarah's. Great, one of the strongest editors Marvel's got, frankly.
0: Who'd you start working with? Like, you know, I think each of us, especially in, in comics, there's sort of like you have mentors and people who sort of show you the ropes of one way, shape, or form. I think of the people who really kicked me around, both at Wizard and at Marvel. Who was it for you that really showed you the ropes of editing?
2: I started at DC uh, as an assistant editor there and I worked with um, Matt Adelson on a lot of the Superman books. And Matt was somebody that, like, he was one of the first editor names I started, like, paying attention to uh, because he was editor on Joe Kelly's Deadpool book. And then I remember watching him as he, like, went over to DC and started doing books like Gotham Central uh, and Edward Baker's Catwoman run. And, And just, you know, so he was somebody that I already was kind of a fan of as somebody that I would come to learn just build good relationships with creators and build projects for them that they'd have a lot of room to get creative with. That influenced me a lot in terms of how I try to approach books that I work on in that way. So yeah, uh, there's, there's lots of people. Uh, Tom Brevoort, I've worked with him since I came over here to Marvel, but I likewise been an admirer of his long before that. Tom's one of the best there ever was, ever will be in the game. And it's been great getting to work with him closely. Same with Axel Alonso, he was the editor-in-chief when I started here, Axel's, I mean, that guy's legendary. Like you look at his run at Vertigo and it's just like, I don't know, I can't think of a sharper batch of books than those ones that Axel had under his belt at Vertigo. They're great. All those anthologies that he did. And so he was likewise an influence on trusting the creators and, and really kind of talking with them about to see what kind of stories they're most passionate about telling and also kind of being open to new voices. So I think that Axel was also amazing at that. He was bringing in people from, all kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of fields. So that definitely influenced me as well. Mark Ciarelli, uh, it was it was wonderful. Uh, he was the art director at DC when I was there, and I tried to take advantage of any chance I could get to talk with him. He was a really great guy. Really, he is a really just genius storyteller.
0: Great names, Will. I love that. But we got to move on. We got to get to our last of your what-if picks for this episode. And uh, it goes into volume two, which made me very happy because this is where I live and breathe in volume two. You chose number 60, which as soon as I saw it come up, as our producer Jasmine said, I was like, wedding album? Boom. Pulled it from my (laughs) spinner rack. And... (laughs) Breathing in the pages, uh, it is the X-Men wedding album issue. Why'd you pick this one?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, the the other two, like, Jane astor is issue, like, I, that mostly came from, like, a, it's got such a strong connection to the Jane astor Thor story that uh, they did, and also the Spider-Man one I think is what if format can be, the possibilities there. This one was, like, this is, like, the first what-if issue I read because um, of, I was, like, you, Ryan, like, a giant X-Men head at the time and finding out that there was more... X-Men stories related to the wedding, related to this period of time, uh, and that there was alternate versions of it. Like, this is probably the first What If I read. Uh, and it came just from, like, wanting to consume more X-Men content. And it's a it's a fun story. Like, uh, Kurt music knocks it out. And it's got a similar structure to that Spider-Man one, where it gives you kind of more bang for your buck, and it. it gives you
1: a couple of different What Ifs within it. This is always fascinating to me when it comes to young readers reading What If stories, of the dynamic of, like, How early on, well, like in your readership, did this come? Because like sometimes people read a what if story not knowing the precedent that it's breaking. So you said you were a big X Men fan before this. So did this make this made total sense to you? You understood what they were going up against, what the reality was, and then what they were playing off of.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like because I knew what the core material was so well. I mean, that'd be pretty cool to have that experience, I guess, where uh, a What If story is maybe your first introduction to some characters, and then you, you know, absorb that and kind of like has that like imprint on you, but then you find out that that's not it at all. That would be a a fun experience, I think. But no, I I knew going into this that it was different from what the main story was.
0: What's cool about it, one of the things that's cool about it is that this issue of What If is released a month after X-Men number 30, The wedding issue and it may have been released within like the next week, but from like a calendar month of when it was released, they like hit back to back. And I like that that connection that like here's a big event in Marvel and we're going to hit you right away with something that ties to it. So we're, we're just like immediately grabbing you and saying, hey, you like that? Also check this out, which I think works really, really well.
2: Yeah, the smart of them for sure.
0: Um, you mentioned Kurt Busick wrote all three stories and the rappers. We've got pencils by Ron Randall, inks by Art Nichols, letters by Janice Chang, colors by Bob Sharon. And the editors here are Rob Tokar and Tom DeFalco, obviously Tom DeFalco, editor in chief, credits himself as caterer in chief in this one, which is, is super fun. This issue to me is great because it is it is like classic 90s what if to me in that It's just doom and gloom most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three stories. You could have had like a high, a medium, and a low, but it's like death of a number of characters in one, the impending potential doom for everyone else in the second one with a lot of question marks, and the end of the universe in another. (laughs) Uh, This is very much shaped like my understanding of comics because of, (laughs) of this like level of, oh god everything's gonna just be destroyed i love it it makes me so happy
2: that's, that's something you know, chip and i talked about at the start of all this was just like crafting stories that like did embrace like the full you know like like there should be no limit to what can happen like you want these crazy twists and turns like not all what if stories have to follow that but like they can and and then sometimes should like just be just bonkers just to be kind of like because that's what this format is it's it's going places that you normally couldn't go or didn't go so like it's coming up with crazy and often that's uh negative like it's dark it's death it's gloom that's fun because then you don't have to deal with the consequences everybody being dead the next issue right like and <laughs> then the spider shadow spider-man <laughs> kills all those villains in like the first couple of issues I and mean, it's can't do that in the real book because we need those spider-man villains to be around
1: but this, sure kill them i love this issue if only for one single panel which comes in the what if phoenix had fallen for wolverine story Scott's moseying on down a hallway, opens a door, and finds Gene and Logan in an embrace. And Gene has the expected, like, Scott? Like, surprise look. But Wolverine has this, yeah, that's right. Look what I'm doing. (laughs) Look on his face, which makes me laugh so hard. It's great.
0: It's so good. And he lights up a cigar. Like, we don't, I think rightfully so, don't have smoking in our comics anymore. But the idea of of Wolverine shoving his tongue down Jean Grey's throat and her like pawing at his like gnarly hair. And then seconds later, he's just like, well, I'm going to pull out this giant stogie and, and light up in, in the mansion. It's just tremendous. Yeah, there, there's three stories in here, as we mentioned, that they're all sort of like hinge around the, the romance between Scott and Jean, whether it happens early, whether Jean falls for someone else. It's not that Scott falls for someone else. Because no one else would love Scott, which is true. It's <laughs> does Jean fall in love with someone else, which I think is probably the most accurate way to to think about these stories.
1: Real quick, Will, before we wrap up, Scott, thoughts, your opinions on Cyclops? Please go.
0: Well, I know, like he's he's a uh,
2: people love hate. Like I, I neither. I don't love. I don't hate Cyclops. <laughs> like, I, I think I think <laughs> a very good character. He's just never he's never been my favorite. He's a very great leader. It's been a lot of great stories. I admire. His uh, dedication to his kids, you know, going over into the future and raising Cable and uh, with Jean, like he's, <laughs> he's he's a good character. I like Scott. He's made some bad choices. He's made some good choices. Who hasn't?
0: Yeah, I give him more crap than he probably deserves. He's actually a pretty good character. But the last thing I wanted to ask you about is obviously these the stories that you all are doing now. The one with Chip, Spider Man, Spider Shadow, and whatever's to come. They are their own standalone things. But they are. We do have the "what if" branding on them. Will we see a Watcher in any of these stories? I can't say. (laughs) Like, like,
2: I'll say. Well, no, that gives a hint one way or the other. Um, (laughs) Stay tuned. Yeah, Watcher is definitely like a foundational part of
0: all these "what if" stories. Like, yeah, right. I'm surprised we got this far without talking about them. My one request is. Have the artist draw him differently every page because one of our favorite <laughs> things is looking at every single odd way that, that Uatu is drawn. Sometimes he's like like cherubic baby. Sometimes he's like old man. Some like he's just every which way you could possibly draw him.
2: His weight fluctuates, the yeah, yeah. size of his head, the shape of his head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Maybe he's like Galactus in that everybody who sees him interprets him in a different way. And so everyone who sees him interprets him in uh, it, with different shapes and sizes and stuff like that. Will, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It was fun.
1: Yeah, you're the best, Will. Thank you. Thank you once more to Will Moss. That's W-I-L, folks. Get it right one of the best guys around one of the best people to talk comics around with and lest ye forget one of the best bibliographies does that make sense ever i would say ever at marvel comics and when it comes to an editor's work and when it comes to the many 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 stories that will's worked on so much good stuff there so thank you once again to will
0: i don't know about ever but for amount of time you know like pound for pound Pound for pound, yeah. Yes. Pound for pound, mm-hmm. definitely high up there. Yeah. yeah. Well said, Tucker. All right, that wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala.
1: Jill DeBoff is our director of audio.
0: And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager, and he always wanted to be a Kang. But um, sorry, Brad, I don't think you'll fit into his thigh-high boots. I, your, <laughs> your thigh-high boots, terrific. His, Great. a little bit thicker. Kang Gang, you're all Kang Gang. <laughs> Ooh, everybody, join the Kang Gang. Yeah, I'm Ryan, and I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel.
1: You're